بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العلم الحكيم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وعملا يا كريم رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل لقدة من لساني يفقه قولي My dear brothers and sisters in Islam, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blast from the past, the seerah in the 21st century, this Thursday night, the 10th of July 2014, live from the Melbourne Medina here in cold Australia. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make our sitting solely for His sake alone. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make our sitting one which is pleasing to Him. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us a gathering that hears a good word and follows it. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to gather us in Jannah in the same way that He has gathered us here today. Ameen. Ameen. Yesterday, my dear brothers and sisters, we completed an introduction to this particular series which will inshallah remain with us till the end of Ramadan bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. In our introduction yesterday, we discussed a brief definition of the term seerah and discussed some benefits, some benefits of studying the seerah. And we said that the objective behind taking those benefits was to wetten our taste buds and make bigger our appetites so that we would be even more diligent with the lessons that we hope to share with each other over the course of today and the upcoming weeks. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increase our love for Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as a result of our sitting together and learning from his life. Ameen. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gather us with him in Jannah as well. Ameen. Ameen. In the upcoming nights, my dear brothers and sisters, I hope for us to cover snippets and lessons up till the end of the Meccan period, inshallah. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills, then we will complete lessons from the end of the Meccan period until the passing away of our beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that will obviously be uh, in another sitting because I do travel uh, back home uh, towards the end of Ramadan. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to preserve us all in His obedience and decree that inshallah we do come together uh, to learn lessons from the events in the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam after he migrated from Mecca, uh, after he migrated from, uh, from Mecca to, to Medina. And the events that took place uh, in Medina up till the end of uh, his life, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So we will, inshallah, discuss this Ramadan, the Meccan period, and those snippets uh, from the Meccan period, and deduce and extrapolate lessons bi'idnillahi ta'ala. Now, when we look at the books of Sirah, what we find is that they, in most cases, begin discussing pre-Islamic Arabia. They always have a synopsis regarding pre-Islamic Arabia, meaning Arabia before the advent of our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this is where you and I will begin, insha'Allah ta'ala. And then uh, if we have some time towards the end of tonight's session, I hope to share with you all a little bit about the genealogy and lineage of our beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, we know, my dear brothers and sisters, that Arabia before Islam was probably, if not the most counterproductive platform of all platforms, the most counterproductive region of all regions. Right? Yesterday we said that it existed between two civilizations, the Romans and the Persians. And we said that this peninsula was not considered to be a civilization. 
was not considered to be a civilized peninsula. It was not considered to be this. So the question that begs to be asked is why this peninsula to be the advent of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, to be the place of revelation, the place in which the ayat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descended. If this was the most counterproductive region, why this region to be the start of the da'wah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam? We know that very few could read and write in this particular region. There was no academic institutions. There was, it wasn't known for its big libraries and, 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 and books and so on and so forth. It wasn't known for its advancement in the different uh, worldly sciences, right? And as we said, very few could read and write. And we know that this peninsula and region was a hot, sandy, desert plain surrounded by very few oases, the plural of oasis, right? Very few oases existed here. So water as well was a problem, which means that this land was monotonous and this land was unfit for cultivation. You couldn't practice agriculture in this particular peninsula as well, right? So this is teaching us how counterproductive this region was and how difficult life there was. And we know that its people were people, as we uh, cited yesterday, people who were shackled, shackled in shirk and upon the misguidance taught to them by their forefathers. They were people who... Whilst they believed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they associated partners unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They were pagans, they were idolaters. And when we look at them, we too see that even though they were idolaters, they had great disunity amidst them and among them with regards to that which they worshipped. Different tribes would have different idols. And in fact, different fa sometimes families within a tribe would create their own idol. And they would worship this idol. This was, this was the, the state of the people, right? You and I would say, subhanallah, I mean, you know, even common sense, common sense would dictate that we wouldn't do this. So what was the state of these people, right? This was a region that had people, as we said yesterday, that lived their life upon this concept of, you know, survival of the fittest. It was rampant with oppression, vibrant with riba, Vibrant in the negative sense, of course. Vibrant with riba. Women were treated as a commodity. Young girls were buried alive. Dispute after dispute. And so on and so forth. So why this particular re uh, region? Our scholars, rahmatullahi alayhim, they answered this question for us. And they cited many wisdoms why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this region to be the starting point of the da'wah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This region to be the place where his revelation would descend upon. From the many wisdoms that they have cited, rahmatullahi alayhim, is that the fact that this region was hot and arid and barren and sandy and ridden of water for this very same fact. The same fact that earlier we said were, or, 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 um, entailed counterproductive elements, right? Our scholars, rahmatullahi alayhim, say for these very same elements, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this particular region because these elements made this region the perfect platform to start the da'wah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Why? They say, because this region was left alone by the other civilizations. They had no concern for Arabia. They had no care for Arabia for the very same reasons that we cited. There was nothing there for them. There was no agriculture. There was no academia, right? There was no literacy. The majority of them were unlettered. There was no reason for these civilizations to take interest in this region, which means the people in this region would receive Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and would receive the message of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam in a way 
that the Romans and the Persians would not. They would receive him sallallahu alayhi wasallam in a very specific, unique sense, given how isolated they were, and given how far they were from any ideologies of the civilizations. The fact that they were left to be, the ideologies of the civilizations never penetrated this particular region, right? So there was no bias. There was no Roman bias. There was no Persian bias, right? And if we look at some of the revelation of certain ayat in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, let's look, since it's Thursday night, a perfect example is Surah Al-Kahf, which we should read on Friday, on Friday, the morning. All right? According to the correct opinion, we are, uh, the, the rewards of Surah Al-Kahf apply when a person reads the surah during the day of Friday, not during the night of Friday. Because most of the narrations which talk about the benefits of reciting Surah Al-Kahf cite the day. We have a narration which cites the night, but this seems to be an odd narration, meaning there seems to be an addition from the narrator. An addition from the narrator because the majority of narrators revealed the hadith or narrated to us the hadith citing day, that whoever reads Surah Al-Kahf during the day of Jumu'ah. This is a footnote of course. Surah Al-Kahf, what was the reason of revelation behind Surah Al-Kahf? Our scholars rahmatullahi alayhim say that Surah Al-Kahf was revealed when the Quraysh decided that they could make no headway with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So they sent a couple of people to Medina, to where the Jews would reside, to ask them their advice on how to deal with Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You see this? They, they, they were not affected by the ideologies of these civilizations, right? The Romans, the Persians, and yes, some of the Jews that existed in, the Jews and the Christians that existed in the peninsula, right? They were, they were far from being uh, affected by their thought processes and so on and so forth. And evidence of this is in the fact that they actually send two people to go and learn from them that look, you were a nation that received many prophets. This man claims to be a prophet and we can't deal with him. So teach us what should we do, right? So they were told, they, would, they received Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam in a way no other nation would have received them given they, the, the unbiased nature of their minds uh, and so on and so forth. And just to complete the story, what happened was these Jews advised them to go to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and ask him three questions. To ask him three questions. And they said, if he answers all three questions, he's not a prophet. And if he doesn't answer all three questions, he's not a prophet. Or the other way around, if he doesn't answer all these three questions, he's not a prophet. And if he does answer all three questions, he's not a prophet. But if he answers some and doesn't answer some, or if he offers detail in some and lacks detail in others, then he's a prophet. Subhanallah. You see, you see how sometimes how you can use knowledge in a false way? Right? They had knowledge. The Jews had knowledge. Allah sent them prophets. Right? A book was revealed to them. And that's why in Surah Al-Fatiha, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, غَيْرِ الْمَغْضُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ We're asking Allah to protect us from being, from amongst those that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's anger descended upon. Who are these people? Our scholars, rahmatullahi alayhim, say that these are the Jews. Allah's anger fell upon them. Why? Because they had knowledge and they didn't practice what they knew. وَلَلْضَالِينَ The misguided ones are the, are the Christians. Because... They acted and worshipped without knowledge. They acted and worshipped without knowledge. The Jews had knowledge and didn't put their knowledge into practice. They didn't put their knowledge into practice. So, what were these three questions? What were these three questions? They said, go and ask him about the people of the cave. Ashab al-Kahf. Am hasibta anna ashab al-Kahf wal-Raqim. Go and ask him about the people of the cave. And ask him about the just king, Dhul Qarnayn. They said the just king, but we know they meant by Dhul Qarnayn. وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنْ ذِلْ In Surah Al-Kahf, Allah says, they ask you about Dhul Qarnayn. 
and ask him about the ruh. Ask him about the soul. Two of these questions were answered in detail in Surah Al-Kahf. And one did not have detail. And that was answered in a surah known as Surah Al-Isra, which is just before Surah Al-Kahf. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ أَنِ الرُّوحِ قُلِ الرُّوحُ مِنْ أَمْرِ رَبِّي وَمَا أُوْتِيتُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا They ask you concerning the soul, tell them that the soul is from the commands of my Lord and that which he has created. وَمَا أُوْتِيتُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا And I have little knowledge concerning the ruh. So he answered two in detail and one, he didn't offer detail, which proved he was a prophet, right? Their plot and plan fell on their face. There's a weak narration, but this is, is, is mentioned in, in almost all the books of tafsir. They say, and this is just uh, to, to add to your knowledge. They say that Rasulullah when these questions came to him, he said to them, I'll tell you tomorrow. But he forgot to say, inshaAllah. So, revelation was delayed. The scholars differed as to how many days. Perhaps the most correct opinion it, uh, is that it was uh, around 14 to 15 days. Wallahu, wallahu a'lam. Wallahu a'lam. There is somebody unknown in the chain of narrators, but this is something very famous in the books of tafsir regarding the revelation of the surah. And our scholars say that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the surah, وَلَا تَقُولَنَّ لِشَيْءٍ إِنِّي فَاعِلٌ ذَلِكَ غَدًا إِلَّا Allah. That don't say I'm going to do something tomorrow. Or I will tell you something tomorrow. Except that you should say, Insha'Allah, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills. So this region, given the elements of this region, and given the people that were brought up in this region and nurtured in this region, the, uh, the reality of this region created no interest in the civilizations that existed. So we find that these pagan Arabs were not influenced by the ways of the Jews, nor the Christians, nor the way of the Persians, nor the way of the Romans. The Romans were obviously Christian. The Persians fire worshippers, even though they are cited as a civilization, but no doubt they had some promiscuous practices, practices which go against the concept of civilization. But if we just use the linguistic definition and say, uh, you know, a civilization refers to a place that has prominence and progress in terms of scientific development, in terms of uh, development of the different academic sciences and so on and so forth, and inventions and so on and so forth, then yes, the Persians had this. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. But even though these nations existed, they were not interested with this, with this region, with this Arabian Peninsula, with this pre-Islamic Peninsula, and in the pre-Islamic era. So these Arabs received Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa without any bias. From the reason cited by our scholars rahmatullahi alayhim is the fact that, or the reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this place to be the place of advent of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa was the fact that these people didn't have one religion. They were pagan idolaters, yes. But even what they worshipped differed. So some of them worshipped the stars. And some of them worshipped trees. And the majority of them worshipped idols. And as I said, every tribe had its own idol. And some families then created their own idols. This was the way. We know Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu famously saying after Islam, that once he made an idol out of dates, and he worshipped it. And then one day he was hungry. So he ate the dates. Right? Right? So this was this is one of the reasons as well why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this place to be the advent of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this should teach us a very important point. And we said this is fiqh sirah. We want to we want to study snippets and extract lessons. We want to extract lessons. And this is the point of nurture versus nature. We discussing the reality of this region. And we know Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam came from this region. And that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam was not affected by the ways of these people. We know that he sallallahu alayhi wasallam would go to his cave, to his, his ghar. To his ghar. A ghar refers to a narrow cave. A kahf refers to 
a slightly wider cave. Just now we said Ashab al-Kahf, the people of the cave. The Arabic language is very rich. It has different names for something for, for the same thing, but there's slightly different elements to this thing that caused the Arabs to give it a different name, given the richness of the Arabic language. So he would go to a ghar. The cave of Hira was very narrow. And for those who have managed to climb the mountain and visit the cave, you would see it's an extremely narrow uh, cave. Although there's no need to climb the mountain. There's no uh, extra rewards for doing so. But for those who have out of interest, you would see that it's a very narrow cave. The cave of the people of the Kahf was said to be a wide cave and thus it had this name Al-Kahf because they, uh, there were seven people, right? And their dog was there in this cave. So they all managed to fit in this cave. There were seven people and their dog. To fit in the cave, it has to be wider. So Kahf refers to a spacious cave and, and, and a ghar refers to a narrow cave. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying the eighth of them was the dog, teaching us that seven, uh, there were seven people, the people of the, of the cave were seven people, and their dog was the eighth being in this environment. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would go to the cave of Hira, and he would contemplate Tawheed, and contemplate the way of Ibrahim alayhi salam, and contemplate how to worship Allah. And as we said yesterday, he didn't know how to. Thus Allah said to him, That from the blessings of Allah upon you, is that you didn't know how to worship Allah, and we taught you how to worship Allah. Dal in the Arabic language, generally means ignorance. But in this ayah, we don't say, we don't translate it as we found you ignorant and, and, and taught you. No. Rasulullah was not ignorant. He was not ignorant. He wasn't upon the way of the pagan Arabs. But he wasn't upon knowledge, complete knowledge. And Allah completed it for him as a blessing. And raised him in rank by giving him this knowledge. By revealing to him, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So he grew up amidst these people. But never do we see that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam ever prostrated to an idol. Never did, do we see that he ever accepted the worship of idols. Never do we see that he ever succumbulated the Kaaba upon the way of the pagan Arabs, clothless, naked, never do we see that he indulged in alcohol, never do we see that he was involved in riba and trade, uh, 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 illegal trade, haram trade, trade which causes harm, never do we see him treating females as a commodity, rather we see him being known with the best of all names. He was known as Al-Ameen, the trustworthy. He was extremely praised by the Quraysh and by Banu Hashim. The Arabs in this, in this place praised him diligently. And this is a point for you and I to ponder. What do we learn from these brothers and sisters? We know today we find this argument, nurture and nature, that you and I, we either a product of nurture or we're a product of nature. We're either a product of, of, of DNA, of science, which is nature, or we're a product of nurture, we're a product of our environments. And if we analyze this, given this, this, this peninsula that we're discussing and how counterproductive it was, and from this region came the best person to walk the face of this earth, we learn from this that you and I are not a product of nurture, nor are we a product of nature. We're a product of our own selves, of our fitrah. Or we should be a product of our fitrah. We need to learn from this. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he was upon fitrah. Why didn't he accept the way of these people? Because his natural disposition which Allah created him upon, did not accept this. Allah says, Fitratallahi allati fataran nasa alayha. Allah created us upon fitrah and a natural disposition. And we know that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said, all of the children of Adam are born upon this fitrah, upon this natural disposition, upon tawheed and belief in our Rabb, and belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But as Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa says, that one's parents make them Christians or Jews or fire worshippers, which means 
our environments have a great potential of polluting our ideologies and our beliefs and affecting us. But does it mean that we are a slave to our environment and we have no way to escape it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In terms of the nature argument, we know from the atheists and those who say that we are a product of nature. We are a product of time and the processes of time. They say you and I exist because of the DNA having this desire to survive. The DNA had a desire to survive. So it directed the body towards finding a spouse and procreation. This is what they say. This is what they say. And they say that a person looks after his child because of the DNA's desire to survive. It knows that this child is the continuation of this DNA. So it looks after it. And they talk about how they use as experiments these animals. Right? Uh, how a, an animal also looks after its offspring. Looks after its offspring. They say this is, this is part of the DNA. But there is an argument that we can share, and that is the argument of the cuckoo bird. You heard of a cuckoo bird? So well, look, the cuckoo bird, you find with the cuckoo bird, if you put another bird in its nest, it will look after that bird as well. It's not its own DNA, but it looks after that bird. So what do they say about that? They say, no, the DNA sometimes can make a mistake. So who's cuckoo now? Is the DNA cuckoo? Or is the person saying we're a product of nature cuckoo? You decide. <laughs> Allah al-musta'an. Allah al-musta'an. They say they have, in, they, they have uh, intellectuality, but subhanAllah, sometimes you just need common sense. <laughs> you just need common sense. Right? So we learn from this, my dear brothers and sisters, that you and I are a product of this inner self that you and I have. But the problem why sometimes the inner self does not guide us is because there's so much loudness around us that you and I fail to hear our inner voice. The inner voice is calling towards Allah. The inner voice is calling towards the obedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The inner voice is calling us towards sanity. But we are living amidst the hustle and bustle of this life that's so loud, the Facebook, the Twitter, the social media, the emails, and so on and so forth. The dogmatic lives that we've put ourselves in, it's so loud that it drowns the voice, the inner voice that is whispering to us and calling us to, towards sanity and towards common sense. And that is why, my dear brothers and sisters, we too need a cave. I'm not saying go and you know, get rocks in your house and start building caves in your rooms. But I'm saying we need a, metaphoric, a metaphorical cave. Right? Right? We need a form of, we need a place that we go to for solace. A place we go to, to switch off from the hustle and bustle of life and understand who we are truly. Who are we? This afternoon I shared, I shared, uh, for those who joined the Dhuhr program, I shared with you writings from Ibn al-Jawzi rahimahullah. In my morning reading, I came across this amazing writing of Ibn al-Jawzi. He was penning his thoughts from his ponderings of life. You see, they used to ponder. They used to ponder. They used to ask themselves, who are they? Sometimes we think we're somebody, but we're really not that person. Shaitan has deceived us so badly that we think we're that person. And that's why the month of Ramadan is important. Because shaitan is locked up. You have a chance now to see who you are truly as a person. I think we said this last night. You can't blame shaitan anymore. If you have weaknesses, you can't say shaitan's fault. No, it's from the evil of yourself. Understand who you are as a person. This is a perfect month of introspection and reflection. To understand truly who you are. How close are you really to Allah? Normally, shaitan, he deceives us and makes us blame him. So a lot of the times we are placed in a sense of delusion that we find and it's, a, it's because of shaitan. And we have to work on fighting shaitan. Yes, we have to work on fighting shaitan and protecting ourselves against shaitan. But working, against, working in protecting yourself against shaitan starts by you understanding yourself. Understanding the holes that you have in your firewall that shaitan uses to inject his viruses. Right? This is the month to, fi to find those holes. 
so you can plug them. So that after Ramadan, when shaitan is on the prowl, and he comes to you, he says, he won't, he won't say subhanallah, what, what does shaitan say? <laughs> but he'll come to you and, and see a different person. See a person of taqwa, this is taqwa. This is taqwa. To build a bridge, to build a barrier. Not a bridge, a barrier between yourself and the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Shaitan has been erecting a bridge between you and the punishment of Allah. Ramadan comes and you have a chance to break that bridge and erect a wall. Erect a wall. Like the story of Dhul Qarnayn. We know Dhul Qarnayn, this just king. He erected a mighty wall and sealed the elements of trouble behind it. The Ajuj and the Ma'juj. Right? We should, we should ponder over the Qur'an, my dear brothers and sisters. We read Surah Al-Kahf time and time again. Time and time again. I think this weekend I am busy, but perhaps next weekend, perhaps next weekend we can get together for a few hours in the afternoon before iftar. Perhaps the organizers can, can, can look into this and we can discuss a little bit about Surah Al-Kahf. It's impossible to discuss all of Surah Al-Kahf in a few hours, but just a little bit. We are in the month of Qur'an and inshallah Allah will reward us greatly. Inshallah. So, we need our cave, brothers and sisters. This place of solace that we go into and understand ourselves. We distance ourselves from our children, from our wives, from our families and see really who we are. We need this. Are we truly connected to that inner voice? Are we truly upon the way of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Are we truly upon the way that gains the happiness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Or do we think we are upon guidance, but really we are hook, line and sink, drowning within the ways of our environments. The nurture, peer pressure, peer pressure, not peer pressure, that's another pressure. <laughs> but there's peer pressure, peer pressure, right? Sometimes the environments throw us right and left and we don't even know, brothers and sisters. So let's take heed from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The fact that Allah chose him to grow up in this region of misguidance. And he came out as the misguided, uh, uh, he came out as the most guided. And it's because of him that you and I inshallah are guided today. This is a sign. This is a sign of looking after the fitrah, of looking after the natural disposition, and understanding it's not nurture, nor is it nature. It's that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us upon. So this is an, an, a, a, a reason from the reasons why the scholars, uh, or, or a reason from the reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose Arabia as the place of advent of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Also, our scholars say that from the reasons why Allah chose this place and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, is that this region had a solid support structure for tribesmen. And we know that Rasulullah benefited from this. This was a region that had people who respected blood and the bonds of blood. If one person was harmed, the entire, the entire tribe would be affected by the harm of one person in this tribe. They had a solid structure for tribesmen and looking after the rights of the people of their tribe. And this policy worked for Rasulullah For when he began his journey inviting towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we know that Banu Hashim protected him greatly. Abu Talib, Abu Talib was his greatest supporter. This tribe of Banu Hashim, one of the tribes of the Quraysh supported him greatly and ensured that no harm came to him from any other tribe. And no other tribe dared harm Rasulullah because no one would want to face the wrath of Banu Hashim, a well-respected tribe, a tribe that was looking after the affairs of the Kaaba. Banu Hashim was looking after the affairs of the Kaaba, as we will come see when we discuss the grandfathers of Rasulullah so Rasulullah benefited from this concept that existed here. Perhaps if he was in another civilization that didn't have the support structure, right? And we see today, today, subhanAllah, 
we see brothers turn on each other. Brothers for a little bit of gain in this dunya. An inheritance issue for example. We see blood brothers turning against each other. Allah knows best how it was in the civilizations around Arabia. But definitely in Arabia, blood was thicker than water. As we say in the English language. Islam came with something greater. Islam came with the bond of Tawheed and the bond of belief. Islam came with a bond far greater than the bond of blood. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. This is what Islam came with. And that is why Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu an, when he was fighting Islam so viciously, he only did so because he saw Islam as that which caused disunity. He didn't understand the wisdom of Islam. He saw it as something causing disunity. Fathers are turning against their children. Children are turning against their fathers. Brothers are turning against each other. Tribesmen are turning against each other. This was not what he was brought, brought up upon. Right? So he fought Islam viciously because he saw Islam as creating disunity. But the day Allah showered guidance upon him, and indeed it is Allah who guides, and he saw that subhanallah, we were upon disunity, and Islam brings us upon unity. He became the greatest supporter of Islam. And we know after his Islam how he went to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and uttered the famous words, Alasna ala al-haqq. Are we not upon the truth? Why are we hiding and worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Subhanallah. Yesterday he was lashing people for reciting La ilaha illallah. Today he's upset as to why we're praying in secret. He says, surely we have a greater right to the Kaaba. We should go and offer this salah at the Kaaba. This is Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu A great character and personality that we find during our study of the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And we said one of the wisdoms why we study the seerah is to grow our love for the sahaba radiallahu anhum ajma'een. From the reason cited as well, my dear brothers and sisters, as to why Allah chose this, reason, uh, this, this region for the advent of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was the fact that this region had the strongest language that existed in the world then. And it is the strongest language that exists in the world now. And that is the Arabic language. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came at a time when the Arabic language was at its peak in terms of eloquence, in terms of elegance, in terms of excellence. Right? The seven hanging odes that denote the pedigree of poetry in the Arabic language existed before the advent of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa which means the Arabic language reached a mighty degree. And the Arabic language is the language which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose as a vessel to hold the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The teachings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Surely the container which holds something mighty must be mighty as well. Think about it. You wouldn't put petrol and paraffin in a plastic packet or bag. You wouldn't. It's not worthy of holding a substance of such density. You need an appropriate container. It might hold water, but it won't hold paraffin, for example. It won't hold, hold petrol, for example, or oil, for example. With time, it will seep through. It's not worthy enough of holding the contents that are inside it. So we choose a worthy container. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose the Arabic language to be the container to hold the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhana rabbi al-a'la. So this region had the greatest language. And subhanallah, think about it brothers and sisters. We are living more than 1400 years after Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And much longer after the advent of the Arabic language. Right? The Arabic language came about many, many years before Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that needs a different discussion. If we discuss the genealogy of the Arabs, the Qahtan and the Adnan and so on and so forth, where did these Arabs come from? Right? That's a whole different discussion. We might need an hour together and it's, uh, it's probably not everybody's cup of tea, genealogy, and it gets a bit too academic and sometimes can get confusing. But inshallah, we'll, we'll look at the lineage of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam at least. The Arabic language existed way before Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but it exists today. You and I, if we learn the, the Arabic language, we can understand the Quran that was revealed to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And we can read the writings of the scholars 
that wrote the explanations of the ayat in the Quran and the teachings of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and so on and so forth. It's an it's a language that has not died. We say languages which have died and languages which have been born. The Arabic language still exists, but what about the languages then? English didn't exist then. Where are the languages of that time, of those civilizations? Do they exist today? Subhanallah. Subhanallah. So it was only worthy. I mean, this reason alone would be enough, or this wisdom alone would be enough for us to appreciate why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this particular region. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. But somebody told me that they came across a study, a study which advised that the greatest sciences that exist today, medicine, astronomy, And all the scientific sciences, the branches of science, even mathematics and physics and so on and so forth, should be translated into the Arabic language to preserve it forever. Right? Western academics, Western academics have appreciated this point that we've cited, which our scholars have cited as a wisdom. Why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose Arabia as the place of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam's advent. Right? Western academia has understood that this language is rich, it's so well preserved, its grammar is of a high pedigree and well documented, its morphology is of a high pedigree and well documented, its eloquence and poetry is of a high pedigree and well documented, and how to understand it and learn it and so on and so forth. In fact, even the way it's taught, the way the language is taught has evolved. Right? Even the way the language is, uh, is taught is evolved, such that it's conducive to the different centuries that we see vibrant with lessons pertaining to the Arabic language to the people that lived within that century. So this is one of the reasons as well why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this region. Another wisdom which our scholars say, rahmatullahi alayhim, is that Arabia was central to the world. This region was central to the entire world. So it was conducive for Islam to spread and flow into the rest of the world. And don't forget that this region had the Kaaba and had the well of Zamzam. The well of Zamzam, which was covered and then undug by one of the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And we, inshallah we'll discuss this. So people were already coming for the Hajj because they knew the Hajj was a place where people gathered. So traders would come for trade. They know that this, we, we should travel there because the world meets up there and we sell our product. Even if they weren't people who performed the pilgrimage, they would come to Arabia. So, this, so, so that the, the da'wah of Muhammad wasallam became easier in that he could pass on the message to those who came to him. Rather than he wasallam traveling to all the different countries and the different dynasties and the different regions, right? They were already coming for the Hajj and he could spread his message amongst them and amidst them. And we see from the seerah that Rasulullah did just that. And this is why he was a great threat to the Quraysh, right? Because when they were coming, he was preaching to them a message which was far different to the ways of the Quraysh and the Quraysh were seen as the protectors of the Kaaba. So this is another wisdom that I was called a site behind why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose uh, this particular uh, region to be the place that his revelation would come to and the place that his Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would come from and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Now, brothers and sisters, when, when we look at these wisdoms, wallahi, what it should do within yourself and myself is grow our love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what it should do. We should become even more amazed by our Creator subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this should cause us to exalt Him more and glorify Him more. For Wallahi, who could have chosen Arabia as the setting for revelation and the sending of a Prophet besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Your mind and my mind would never. If we sat down, if we were given the task, think about it, of choosing the place for revelation and the advent of the final Prophet, no prophet will come after him. And, this, and we looked at Arabia and saw how barren it is, how arid it is, how hot it is, the nature of its people, the way it lacks resources, there's no water there. It's not a place of agriculture. You'll never see plantations there. 
and so on and so forth. Mecca is a valley in and of itself. Would you and I choose this place with our minds and limited wisdom and hikmah? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. Only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could choose this place. And when we read the seerah and understand these wisdoms, surely our love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should increase as our awe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increases or our awe of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increases. Right? This, is, this teaches us that truly the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is perfect. Is perfect. And this should teach us how we don't know and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows. Wallahu ya'lam wa antum la ta'lamun. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Asa an takrahu shay, wa huwa khayrun lakum. Wa asa an tuhibbu shay, wa huwa sharrun lakum. Right? Allah says sometimes you like something but it's bad for you. And sometimes you dislike something but it's good for you. Subhanallah. Wallahu ya'lam. And Allah knows. وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ And you truly don't, uh, do not know. That is why never complain and never be people of ajala and isti'jal. People who act in haste. A trial or tribulation befalls and immediately we start denying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Instead of exercising the belief which we say we have in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and, and the wisdom that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, and how perfect his wisdom is. Instead of doing this, we become people who act in haste. And we deny Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wal-iyadu billah. Understand my dear brothers and sisters, there's nothing, there's nothing as complete evil. There's nothing as complete evil. Evil is what you and I perceive as evil. But the, if you look at it from another angle, there's benefit. I'll give you an example. Allah protect all our cars. Ameen. If hailstones fell from the sky and smashed all the windscreens of our vehicles, is that good or bad? That's bad, isn't it? Is that, would you say, Salaamu Alaikum, good news? My windscreen got crashed today, smashed today by hail. What about yours? It happened, Alhamdulillah. <laughs> would we do this? No, it's bad. It's, is it good or bad? It's bad. But what about the guy who sells windscreens? Good or bad? Hey, alhamdulillah, I got business. Right? The guy who sells windscreens, he's sold out. So whilst it was bad from one angle, for somebody else it was good. Right? There's nothing like complete evil. Right? And take this lesson. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this region. From the outset, you and I will say, subhanallah, this region out of all regions. But when we look at the result, the result that you and I are Muslims today because of this region, and the wisdoms which our scholars rahmatullahi alayhim have deduced as to why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this region. What would you say, good or bad? We say it was the perfect place. There was no better place than this place to witness the advent of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. In everything, brothers and sisters, take the story of Yusuf alayhi salam. When he was thrown into the bottom of the well as a young boy, seven or younger, was that good or bad? That was bad. It's a young boy left to die in the bottom of a well. But 50 something years later, when he is the minister in Egypt, and it's because of his skills, he was able to save or, or able to create a situation of surplus in terms of the agriculture that they, they practiced, that when the drought came, he was able to feed Egypt as well as the surrounding regions. Right? Right? The fact that now he is the minister and in charge of this, and he could not have become who he became if he wasn't thrown into the well when he was this young boy. When you look at it from that perspective, was him being in the well good or bad? It was very good. It was very good. If he, did, if he wasn't in the well, the caravan would not have found him. If they didn't find him, they wouldn't have transported him to Egypt. If he wasn't transport, transported uh, to Egypt, he wouldn't have been in the slave market when the, when the minister at the time was shopping for a slave. Subhanallah. You see the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That is why don't be people who act in haste, my dear brothers and sisters, and deny Allah. We make dua and we act in haste. Allah will always answer our, our dua. As Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught us, accept the dua of the one who makes his dua in haste. He makes his dua in haste. He makes dua, then he says, Allah is not answering my dua. And this happens. 
This happens, people say this. I'm asking and asking and asking until when? Until when, am I, until when is Allah going to make me suffer? I'm making dua even that. He's not answering my dua. Waliyadu billah. I've heard this. I've heard this. This is dangerous, my dear brothers and sisters. Al-ajalatu min shaytan Acting in haste is from shaytan. We have to be people of patience. And people of true iman. And as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَقَدْ فَتَنَّ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ فَلَيَعْلَمَنَّ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ صَدَقُوا وَلَيَعْلَمَنَّ الْكَاذِبِينَ It's not enough for you to say, I believe. It's not enough for you to say you believe. And Allah won't test you. He's going to test, the He's going to, test you to make manifest the reality of what you have said. Do you truly believe? Do you truly believe and exercise patience when difficulty afflicts you? And this highlights the reality of your iman? Or do you act in haste and deny Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and disbelieve? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. Ameen. Ameen. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shower upon us wisdom. Allah says the one who's been given wisdom has been given abundant good. Abundant good. Right? As we discuss these wisdoms behind why Allah chose Arabia as the advent for Muhammad sallallahu as, as the place where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam will emerge from, we can't help but ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us people of wisdom as well. Ameen. Ameen ya Rabbil Alameen. Before ending off, my dear brothers and sisters, as said, let's discuss a little bit about the genealogy of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When we look at the lineage of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we see that we can divide his lineage into three portions. The first portion has the lineage that all the scholars agree to. There's no difference of opinion regarding the chain and the names mentioned in the chain. And then we have the second portion and that portion consists of a chain that the scholars have disputed. And there's evidences, but the evidences are not clear. Thus the scholars have disputed. They've disputed certain, they've disputed the, uh, the chain being uh, the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam or certain grandfathers that have been mentioned being from the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and so on and so forth. And then we have the third portion. And this portion is a portion that has little or no evidence to substantiate it. Okay, three portions. As for the first portion, then this consists of the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam up to his grandfather who was named Adnan or called Adnan. Earlier I told you about Adnan and Kahtan, right? They, they, they have been said to be the foundation of the Arabs, right? Although Kahtan differed from Adnan because Adnan was from the descendants of Ismail alayhi salam. And Ismail alayhi salam was not Arab Arab. He wasn't, he wasn't from Arabia. He was from Iraq. Ibrahim alayhi salam was in Iraq. And Ibrahim alayhi salam left Ismail alayhi salam with Hajar alayhi salam in the place where now we find the, the well of Zamzam and the Kaaba. Right? So they were, they, they were moved uh, to, uh, to, to Mecca. They were moved to Mecca. But originally they were from Iraq. But we know that Ismail alayhi salam as he grew up and the well of Zamzam brought the, the, uh, the Arabs into the region. He married from one of the tribes that came into this region. And thus, the Arabian uh, concept came into play in terms of his progeny. And thus we have Adnan uh, that is said to be one of the foundations of the Arabs. One of the foundations of uh, the Arabs. And then we have Qahtan. Uh, and that is another foundation of the Arabs. Now what we must know is all prophets after Ibrahim alayhi salam go back to Ibrahim alayhi salam. All prophets after Ibrahim alayhi salam go back to Ibrahim alayhi salam via his two sons. Ismail alayhi salam, which the scholars of Tafsir say or some say, was given to Ibrahim alayhi salam when Ibrahim was 90 years of age. And Ishaq alayhi salam, which the scholars say, was given to Ibrahim alayhi salam around 10 years after Ismail alayhi salam. So all prophets go back to Ibrahim alayhi salam via these two prophets. But what's more interesting 
is all the prophets go back to Ibrahim السلام, via Ishaq السلام, except one prophet and that is Muhammad وسلم, for he goes back to Ibrahim السلام, via his son Ismail السلام. so Muhammad وسلم, is from the progeny of Ismail السلام, whilst the other, the, the, the other prophets Ishaq and Yaqub uh, and Yusuf السلام, and so on and so forth, Musa and, and, and Isa and so on and so forth, they from the progeny of Ishaq السلام. Is this clear? Right? This was, this, this was one of the blessings of Ibrahim السلام. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave Ibrahim السلام, blessings that, that other prophets did not have. Because of the barakah and, 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 and blessing of Ibrahim السلام, himself. Allah loved him a lot. And Allah gave him a mighty rank. And this mighty rank was given to Ibrahim السلام, Why? Because of the level of Tawheed of Ibrahim السلام. His Tawheed was praiseworthy. And that is why we find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving him precedence in the Quran, in front of other prophets, in many an ayah. Allah will mention him first, even though it might be, or a person might say, that it would be uh, acceptable if he was mentioned later. But Allah brings him in front in, in, in many an ayah. In many an ayah, and our scholars say because of his tawheed and level of tawheed, and, and, and as Ibrahim said, muslimin he was a champion of tawheed and being the greatest submitter to the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we know that he put a knife to the neck of his son, a son that was given to him when he was 90 years old. For years he was asking Allah for this son, for years he was asking Allah for this child, for years, so that tawheed could continue on earth after him. He wasn't asking for a child like how you and I ask for a child. Subhanallah. He was asking so that the message of Tawheed would continue. But yes, it's natural that a father loves his child and a parent loves his or her child. It's natural. Allah tested him. Allah tested him with that child. That who is more beloved to you? Allah and the law of Allah or your child? Because remember, Islam refers to Istislam. And Islam refers to submitting to the will of Allah in the moment that you are in. If you submit to the will of Allah in the moment that you live in, you are a Muslim. You are a Muslim. Right? That is why our scholars, Rahmatullahi alayhim, say, the Jews who accepted Isa alayhi salam and died upon the way of Isa were Muslim. Because they accepted the will of Allah and that was accepting Isa alayhi salam as a prophet. And those who accepted Musa السلام, were Muslims, but when they denied Isa, they came out of, of the fold of Islam because they did not submit to the will of Allah in the moment that they lived in. Islam. This is the meaning of Islam. Yes, we always hear Islam means peace, and Islam does mean peace. But Islam also means something else, which is submitting to the will of Allah in the moment that you are in. And this is not a story of Ibrahim السلام, We're discussing the seerah of Rasulullah the greatest man to have walked the face of this earth. But nonetheless, this is necessary mention given that Ibrahim السلام, is considered to be the father of the prophets for the reason which I shared with you earlier. Now, we said that Ibrahim السلام, received many blessings. From the blessings of Ibrahim was that he was cited as the father of the Arabs. Or Allah made every prophet after him to be linked to him in lineage. Number one. Number two, we see from the blessings of Ibrahim السلام, that he was chosen to build the Kaaba, an act of worship that nobody else can do. Which prophet after Ibrahim السلام, did this? Nobody. Nobody. وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُ إِبْرَاهِيمَ الْقَوَاعِدِ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ وَإِسْمَعِيلِ رَبَّنَا تَقَبَّلْ مِنَّا Subhanallah, look at this ayah. Look at this ayah. It's ajeeb, wallahi. Right? Ibrahim is a specific person, he's a prophet. The task he was given to do was specific. Nobody else can do that task. Build the Kaaba. The place that he had to do it was specific as well. It cannot be done anywhere else. Specific, specific, specific. And even though all these specifics fell on him, and he was specific himself, what does he say after he finishes? رَبَّنَا تَقَبَّلْ مِنَّا Allahu Akbar Oh Allah, accept from us. Subhanallah. As if there were other servants of Allah doing it. We say, Allah, accept from us as we accept from them. Today, subhanallah, who knows what we say. Allah accept from me, don't accept from him. It's competition, it's always market share. 
We live in the era of branding and marketing, right? Consumerization, market share. Who owns the lion's share of the market? Isn't it? Right? Even amongst du'at, that, that discussion happens, you know, which sheikh has the most Facebook followers? This happens, isn't it? Everyone's laughing. Who's got the lion's share of the da'wah? Isn't it? There was no competition amongst the Anbiya alayhimu salatu wasalam. They were assisters to one another. They helped one another. Do you not see the example of Ibrahim alayhi salam and Lut alayhi salam? They lived in the same time. And when the angels came to give Ibrahim alayhi salam glad tidings of a child, and then they told him that we're also going to the people of Lut. We're going to destroy this nation. Great punishment is coming to them. What did Ibrahim alayhi salam do? Did he say, Alhamdulillah, my competition. You know, we're both in the, we're both in the da'wah, right? He's an organization, I'm an organization. I need to shut that organization down, <laughs> right? Did he say, Alhamdulillah, now I can take that, it can, it can be all mine? No, no, he immediately spoke to the angels and said, Qala inna fiha luta. Lut is there, what are, you, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? My brother's there. Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. Look, they were helpers to one another. They, they knew that what this Prophet wants to do is what this Prophet wants to do. When he's successful, I'm going to celebrate. Because he's, he's creating the world I'm trying to create. And when I'm successful, he's going to celebrate. Because I'm creating the world he wants to create as well. We should assist one another and we shouldn't fight with one another and try and, and close one another down. May Allah grant us the understanding. These are side notes, but I said this is fiqh seerah. We're not going to be discussing the seerah, uh, me telling you the story of the seerah. We said we're going to take snippets and learn from it, right? That's what we want to do. So inshallah, this discussion is in its place. Ibrahim alayhi salam, he defended Lut. Alayhi salam, may Allah gather us with these great anbiya in Jannah. Ameen. So Ibrahim alayhi salam, he asks Allah to accept from him. Wallahi, this is a lesson for you and I, my dear brothers and sisters. We practice fasting. This is not a specific ibadah. Everybody practices fasting. In fact, Allah says, fasting was prescribed upon the people before us as well. Right? When we finish fasting, let's make it a habit to ask Allah, Rabbana taqabbal minna. When we finish taraweeh and qiyam, this is not specific ibadah. The ummah is performing this ibadah. Let us make it a habit to ask Allah, Rabbana taqabbal minna. This should be the way of a believer when he worships Allah. A believer does not become arrogant when he worships. He does not tell himself, I have reached. I am better than him. I perform three, raka, three salawat in the day in the masjid. He doesn't perform any at all. I am better. I observe the hijab, she doesn't, I am better. My trousers are above my ankles, his isn't, I am better. I have a beard, subhanallah. No, ibadah should make us more humble. Ibadah should make us more humble. The more of the sunnah Allah blesses us to revive, the more humble we should become, brothers. This is the nature of, of these ibadat. These ibadat bring us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if, if this is the case, then the qualities of the hereafter come into our hearts. If our ibadah is not making us humble, there's a problem with our application, my dear brothers and sisters. Understand this. Ibrahim alayhi salam is the greatest example. Specific person, specific act of worship, specific place. There's no one else who's going to take it away from him. But he turns to Allah and says, Rabbana taqabbal minna. From the blessings of Ibrahim alayhi salam, is that Allah lifted mass punishment from the earth after him. No nation was wiped off the face of this earth in its entirety after Ibrahim Not even the mushrikun, the pagan Arabs. Given their jahiliyyah and ignorance. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. I've been given a red card. I've been given a red card by the way. You know, I, I thought, is the, the World Cup's not finished yet? The World Cup's still on? Don't they give yellow cards before red cards? Five. <laughs> we'll finish just now, inshallah. We'll finish just now, inshallah. So, this first portion, which the scholars agreed to, entail the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam up to Adnan. Up to Adnan. 
And this chain goes as follows. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the son of Abdullah, the son of Abdul Muttalib, the son of Hisham, who was the son of Abd Manaf, who was the son of Qusay, who was the son of Kilab, who was the son of Murrah, who was the son of Ka'ab, who was the son of Lu'ay, who was the son of Ghalib, who was the son of Fihr, who was the son of Malik, who was the son of Nadr, who was the son of Kinana, who was the son of Khuzaymah, who was the son of Mudrika, who was the son of Ilyas, who was the son of Mudar, who was the son of Nizar, who was the son of Ma'ad, who was the son of Adnan. This lineage, all the scholars agree to. This is the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam up to Adnan. The last lineage which I said, which has little or no evidence, is from Ibrahim alayhi salam up to Adam alayhi salam. Up to Adam alayhi salam. And perhaps this, uh, the fact that uh, our sharia has given us the greatest details pertaining to this first portion, and the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam up to Adnan is enough for us. It's, it suffices for us. And there's great wisdoms, there's great wisdoms in this noble lineage, right? Inshallah, you know, uh, red card means I have to get off the pitch. So I respect that. Inshallah, what we will do is when I come tomorrow, Inshallah, when Allah brings us together tomorrow, we will discuss some of the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and some of the things they did which made them worthy. And, 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 and this will teach us how noble the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is. And then we will ponder uh, and extrapolate certain wisdoms, certain wisdoms from the fact uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with this noble lineage. Wallahi al-hadithu la yumal as they say. When we speak about the, the best of people to have walked the face of this earth, one doesn't become bored. One doesn't become tired. I love you all for the sake of Allah. Everything correct said is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He's perfect. And any mistakes are from myself and shaitan and I seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness. May Allah preserve us in His obedience and gather us here again tomorrow. Hada wallahu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shukran na'am.